0: Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. I'm Alan Olga, and this is Clear and Vivid, Conversations about connecting and communicating.
1: Oh, I hope we learn some really fantastic things. And I hope the most fantastic is something we can't guess now. But the things we can predict ahead of time are things like... We can measure what is in an atmosphere of an exoplanet around another star. So that's one pretty astounding thing. Another astounding thing is that we should be able to see the first galaxies that come together after the Big Bang, that we'll see back as far as it makes sense for astronomers to see anything.
0: That's astronomer Marsha Rieke. She spent the last 20 years preparing for the moment next month when the camera she designed and whose construction she oversaw will be launched a million miles out into space. Her camera will be able to see things astronomers have never seen before. And it's a central part of the $10 billion James Webb Space Telescope, successor to the Hubble. This is so great to be talking with you. This is a spectacular thing you've done that you're still finishing up the last touches on. A telescope like no other telescope that's ever existed before. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. And it's been a it's been quite a journey's a 20-year journey.
0: 20 years you've been working on this, putting it together, planning, testing it. Could you give me a picture, a word picture of what the telescope looks like? What are the parts? How do they work? They have to unfold at a certain point in a certain way. What's going on there?
1: Ah, oh, I can do that. Um because I have a I have the The picture of the telescope burned in my mind at this point. So it launches with the structures that hold the sun shield kind of folded up like a clamshell. So the pallets that hold the sun shield are lowered down first, and then they open up, and there's a series of motors and pulleys that pull the sun shield layers into position. And then the whole thing gets lifted up a couple of feet above the sun shield so to get away from the heat. And that, at that point, we say it's fully deployed. All the structures have been moved into their appropriate positions. So there's the gold-coated 18 segments of the primary mirror, the little secondary mirror out in front, and... So if you imagine the light coming in, it bounces off the primary, then off the secondary. The secondary directs it through a hole in the center of the primary mirror. And on the back side of the telescope, not usually noticed in uh, pictures, is the box that holds the four instruments that will analyze the light. Once one of the cameras gets some light, the signal gets converted just like in a digital camera, and that digital signal then gets sent down to underneath the telescope where there's a spacecraft that has an antenna that sends the data back down to Earth where we can turn it into a picture we can look at.
0: I'm learning some amazing things about it. The, th- the first thing I couldn't get over was that you're going to put it up a million miles away from the Earth. Is it, do I have that right?
1: You have that right, about four times further away from the Earth than the moon is that
0: well as soon as I heard that, I thought, how could that possibly be? how could it, how could it have enough gravity to orbit orbit the Earth if it's a million miles away? and then I found out what it's going to really be orbiting. It will be orbiting the sun correct right? correct and and because astronauts can't get there, what do you have to do to make sure? that the thing works the first time?
1: Well, first you say your prayers. But but in in all seriousness, um, there is a lot of redundancy. There are a few single-point failures in some of the deployment system because there's simply no way to put two on. But the real answer to to how, how do you make certain that it works the first time, is to test it, test it again, shake it like it was on a rocket ride, test it again, and so on. And so it's the testing that's really crucial to making one feel comfortable that it's going to work right.
0: You know, I can understand how you can test it as though we're on a rocket ride. You shake it about the same amount. But how do you... How do you get the conditions that exist way out in space?
1: Well, the main telescope part got tested in a chamber at Johnson Space Flight Center that is huge and was originally built um, to practice using the lunar rover, of all things. Mm. And so the whole telescope and instrument stuff could fit in that chamber, and that chamber— was cooled down to um, about the same temperature as the telescope will experience in space. And, of course, um, there were gigantic vacuum pumps that sucked all the air out, so it was just like the vacuum of space.
0: Mm. Do I have it right that the, the telescope is going to be between the Earth and the sun?
1: Um, No, it's actually on the opposite side of the Earth from the sun, so that the sun, the Earth, and the moon are all in the same direction from the telescope. So the sun shield blocks the heat from all three.
0: And why do you need to block that heat?
1: One of the key features of the Webb telescope is it's being so cold so that it can work at long wavelengths, much longer than the Hubble. And so it's detecting what some people might call heat radiation. I just call it long wavelength light. And if the telescope were to be warm, then it would be like trying to see a star during the daytime. It's very, you, you just couldn't the, Oh the you, other your, own,
0: your own heat blocks the view. Correct. All of this effort has gone into the, the building of this device. What are we going to learn from it?
1: Oh, I hope we learn some really fantastic things. And I hope the most fantastic is something we can't guess now. But the things we can predict ahead of time are things like we can measure what the is in an atmosphere of an exoplanet around another star. When I think back to when I first went into astronomy, we didn't even know about exoplanets, much less be able to measure measure their atmospheres. So that's one pretty astounding thing. Another astounding thing is that we should be able to see the first galaxies that come together after the Big Bang, that we'll see back, as far as it makes sense for astronomers to see anything. And we're going to learn so much about how galaxies change over time that that will probably pretty much revolutionize all the textbooks.
0: (laughs) So I'm really eager to talk about the exoplanets, but before we do, let's talk about seeing the formation of the first galaxies. Now, as I understand it, we have not been able to do that with the Hubble yet or any other telescope because we haven't been looking at the infrared spectrum, part of the spectrum. Correct. So why is that? Why do we need to look with infrared light rather than the light that we usually see ordinarily?
1: It's because the universe is expanding, And the expansion means that things far away from us are moving away from us at quite a high rate of speed. And if something's moving away from us, there's an effect called the Doppler shift, same as when an ambulance drives by you and you hear the pitch change from high to low. The galaxies that are moving away from us, their lights shifted to the red, and when we look at the very most distant ones the light is shifted all the way into the infrared beyond where hubble can see so
0: what do you expect to see and what will you be surprised by when you're able to see the formation of the first galaxy
1: well the the leading theory is one where Small blobs get pulled together by gravity to make bigger blobs, which pull other blobs to make even bigger ones so that galaxies get bigger and bigger over time until you run out of blobs to collect. (laughs) But if we should see some very big galaxies early on, that will change a lot of, of our thinking about exactly what the distribution of matter is um, early in the history of the universe and that might have to change what we think about dark matter and so on so there's uh. Uh, and of course I'd love to see a few big ones because it's easier to see big bright ones than little tiny ones <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the formation of the first galaxies began to occur how long after the Big Bang
1: well, That's exactly how long is one of the questions we'd like to answer, but Uh, we would estimate of order 100 million years.
0: Will there or won't there be black holes yet?
1: That's actually one of the questions we'd like to answer because that's something we also don't know. And the fact that galaxies today all seem to have a black hole at their center And the size of that black hole is related to the size of the galaxy, meaning bigger galaxies have bigger black holes, smaller ones, smaller black holes. And somehow this relation gets established apparently quite early on in the history of the universe. So that's another thing that we're not certain exactly how we'll see it, but we certainly want to keep an eye out for it.
0: Let me ask you about life on other planets, on these exoplanets. When you're looking for planets that might have life on them, you're not looking at the earliest galaxies. You're looking at our own galaxy, right? You're looking at stars in yes. our own galaxy.
1: Yeah, and actually relatively nearby stars.
0: By relatively nearby, how, how close would the nearest one be?
1: Well, the nearest one might be only three or four light years. Um, wow. We are going to look at the planets around Alpha Sun, which is the nearest star.
0: and do you still need the infrared capabilities of the telescope when you're looking at something so close that it's not we're not worried about the Doppler effect?
1: Yeah, the infrared is helpful because planets um emit heat themselves. And so it's easier to study them at infrared wavelengths because that's where they're, where they are brightest, relatively speaking. And also a lot of the molecules that we would be interested in detecting do create absorptions at infrared wavelengths. So it's easier to diagnose the composition if you can measure the planet in the infrared. Can you help me out
0: with that phrase? They create absorptions?
1: Yes. Um, when, you know, an atmosphere is comprised of, you know, various gases and things. Our own atmosphere, for example, um, has a certain amount of water vapor. And the parts of the water molecule vibrate back and forth. And those vibrations mean that the water molecule will absorb light that matches the rate at which they're vibrating. Hmm. And so molecules have a set of fingerprints. If you, can tell, if you measure where they absorb light, measure that pattern, that tells you what molecules are there.
0: So you'd be looking for molecules that are present in our atmosphere that seem to make life possible on our planet.
1: That would be the hope. And there's, of course, a lot of debate about exactly what collection is the best, best uh, thing to look for.
0: <laughs> yeah. And and that doesn't even get into the idea that there might be another chemistry at work?
1: I, I mean, we can only guess from the example we've seen, but right. obviously that's pretty biased. It's a sample of exactly one.
0: <laughs> so is it possible you'll be surprised by something there, what would what would be the biggest surprise you'd expect uh, from an exoplanet?
1: Well, if we found something, um, what the chemists would call disequilibrium chemistry, meaning a collection of molecules that can't be maintained unless there is some active. Um, set of reactions going on. I mean, the Earth's atmosphere is thought to be in disequilibrium simply because there's a lot of oxygen that would otherwise go into making rust and all the iron on the Earth and so on and so forth. But if we saw a similar kind of chemical mixture but made out of different elements, but something where there was a dominant molecule that that we don't we can't understand how it would be there unless there was some agent making it be there. That might really change our view of biology.
0: What about the odds of finding life, of any kind of life, on another planet, even if it's a one-celled organism? What do you think the odds are?
1: I think if you find um, a planet that you know, has got reasonable conditions— and and i'm not going to define what i mean by reasonable other than not super hot or super cold but i think the odds are probably really high very high it's just hard to prove that you can that you're detecting that
0: will you be looking for planets that are at that goldilocks distance from their sun similar to our distance to from our sun
1: Absolutely. If you, if you went through the list of proposals for the first year, you would find several where people have chosen Goldilocks planets to try to study and see with, what kind of molecules they can see from those, in those planets' atmospheres. When we come back
0: from our break, Marsha Rieke tells me why the hugely complex Webb Telescope built by NASA at a cost of some $10 billion, will be sent into space by a French rocket launched from the Atlantic coast of South America. Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. The goal is to bridge the two cultures of science and the humanities by supporting an array of artistic works depicting science, including books, radio, television, film, theater, and new media. For more information, visit sloan.org or follow at Sloan Public on Twitter or Facebook. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Marsha Rieke. We recorded our talk in early October when the Webb Telescope was still on its way to its launch site. You're only a few weeks away from the launch. What still needs to be done before the launch?
1: The first thing is that after the boat that's currently carrying the telescope from Los Angeles to the launch site in Kourou, French Guiana, after it gets there, it will go to a building with a clean room, and a crew, including some of my team, are going to test it and make certain that everything is still working uh, in an electrical sense, Uh, make certain that nothing got broken on the travels to the to the launch site, and then um, it has to get attached to the rocket itself. So there's quite a few steps in here. Uh, The fuel tanks have to be loaded up with the propellant, um, and everything has to get bolted onto the top of the rocket.
0: Why is it in Los Angeles, and why is it going to French Guiana?
1: (laughs) It was in Los Angeles because uh, just south of the Los Angeles airport is where Northrop Grumman has their main facility. And they were responsible for doing the last round of assembly of of the telescope and spacecraft. So it's actually been at Northrop Grumman for several years. And so it was logical to just put it on a truck and take it to the port in Long Beach. And then it was put on this boat. And the reason it's being launched from French Guiana is that this mission is actually a collaboration between NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency. And the biggest single contribution from the Europeans is the rocket. And the French rocket we're using, it's called Ariane 5, gets launched from a spaceport um, on the Atlantic coast of French Guiana.
0: So you've been spending 20 years working on this telescope and you're putting it in the hands of a rocket that you have no control over. Does that that get you at all nervous?
1: Well, I've, I've decided to adopt the philosophy that if I can't influence it, I'm going to have to accept it, and at least I know that a lot of people that I respect and trust have reviewed the plans, and they look good. And if you look at reliability, this particular French rocket is the most reliable big rocket that's in existence right now. So, you know, rocket launches are always scary because it's a rocket's a controlled explosion. But the way I look at it... Um, I don't have any way to influence it. It looks like a good plan to me and I'll cross my fingers. Mm.
0: How about along the way since since 20 years ago until now have have there been any moments where you thought oh this this is this is not going to work?
1: Um I I always thought that we'd figure things out but there were a few times when um It was pretty easy to get frustrated. My particular instrument has uh, a bench that all the lenses and detectors and things are attached to, and the bench is made of beryllium. And when it was being machined in Alabama, uh, a machinist pressed the wrong button and drilled a big hole through it, and the beryllium broke, and we had to start all over. And, uh, you know, that wasn't like... A mysterious problem. It was just a mistake, but you know, when you're trying to get stuff done, a couple million dollar mistakes are not very pleasant.
0: No, I can understand the frustration. What about once it gets up there where you where you want it to be? How long will it be before you start getting data that you can examine?
1: Well. My camera itself will be turned on 35 days after launch because it helps align the telescope. And so shortly after it's turned on, we'll, we'll start getting some star images that, that won't be scientifically useful, but will help us line the telescope up because the telescope comes with 18 mirror segments that have to be aligned to simulate a single smooth mirror and it will probably be f- about 4 or 5 months after launch before we start getting something that would interest a scientist and it'll be 6 months after launch before we go into regular science operations
0: how did you get started in it what 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 was the what were the events that led to your doing this revolutionary project?
1: Well, back in 1998, when I first really got involved, I had worked on a couple of other space projects, including an infrared camera that went on the Hubble Space Telescope. And I could see the limitations of those projects. And when the chance came to join a group that was it was called an ad hoc science working group, And their charter was to kind of brainstorm what the telescope and its instrument collection should look like. I had some very specific ideas of things I wanted to see this mission do. And so it was based on the limitations of a couple of other missions I'd worked on that didn't quite do all that would excite me.
0: What does excite you about this work? What is it that keeps you at it?
1: Well, a couple of things. One is, uh, you know, there's nothing like the joy of discovery. Learning something, even if it's just small and trivial, that no one else has ever known, I, I find that a lot of fun.
0: Interviewing people like you, I find it fun <laughs> learning things that most everybody knows but me. <laughs> and that's good enough for me. But you're, you are finding out things that nobody does know. That must be very exciting.
1: That's very exciting. And and the other thing that I enjoy is I like to make things work. Huh. So somebody says, can you do X, Y, Z? I like to see if I can figure out a way to make that happen.
0: You've had to work with a number of departments on this, I imagine.
1: Oh, quite a few. <laughs> quite a few. Because I'm, I'm not an engineer. I'm actually originally a physicist. So I kind of understand the basic principles underlying things. But what's the best way to actually do something? I need help sometimes, <laughs> a lot of help sometimes.
0: <laughs> Did you have trouble getting this funded over the 20-year period?
1: Not not in the sense of getting the money so much from Congress, but there were times when the allocation to the project as a whole wasn't quite as big as it needed to be, and different Parts of the project needed funding at different times, and so some of us kind of had to tighten our belts for a year or so while somebody else solved their big problem. Mm. But that was mostly early on, and the last five, six years, things have gone pretty smoothly from the funding standpoint.
0: Will the Hubble still be up there and still delivering information that's useful to
1: us? It will be. There's no plan at the moment to turn it off until it finally breaks to the point where we can't can't point it anymore, or or the electricity fails, something like that. And uh. it has some features that are complementary to Webb, and uh, it's quite possible we'll discover something with Webb, and then we'd want to go back and look at the ultraviolet or something using Hubble.
0: Tell me about the person that the the Webb telescope is named after, was he himself an astronomer?
1: No. He was actually, uh, some people describe him as the consummate bureaucrat. <laughs> he, he was um, in charge of the, I think, of the Office of Management and Budget under Truman, and he was chosen to be the NASA administrator because he was very good at managing things. And so he was the administrator during the Apollo program. And the reason people thought to name a telescope after him is that in the early days of NASA, he fought very vigorously to keep science as part of the NASA's portfolio. So we can thank him for there being moon rocks that we can study in labs and, and those kinds of things. He was, He might have been a bureaucrat and a budget person, and a policy person, but he really cared about science,
0: although not a scientist himself. That's very interesting. So the experiments that are done when rockets go up uh, wouldn't wouldn't be done. What what would have been the point just to see if we could get up there?
1: I'm yeah, probably the point to get up there. Um, the Defense Department had various uses, spy satellites, uh-huh. those kinds of things. Yeah, where do
0: you think it's going to go after this?
1: Ah, that's a tricky question because web is sufficiently expensive and complicated that although astronomers have ideas of bigger and more complicated things, I think it it may be hard to generate something more complicated than this for a while. We'll need to figure out some more management tools and whatnot. The other thing is that there's there's some other aging spacecraft that work in different regimes. There's an X-ray telescope called Chandra that was launched um, not long after Hubble, and we really could use a, f- a fresh version of that and that could be quite improved over what Chandra can do.
0: What does Chandra so, do? What What's its mission?
1: Its mission is to... St- Study um, the sky at x-ray wavelengths. So it's very good at studying um, black holes, for example. Anything that's extremely hot in the universe is its, its role in life. And uh, right now, we, we don't have a replacement on the books for it.
0: You know, we end our conversations with seven quick questions that are always interesting, but I, I think in the context of what we're talking about, they might be even more interesting. They're generally related to communication. And the first question may or may not have anything to do with what we've been talking about. It could have something to do with something entirely different. It's up to you. The question is, what do you wish you really understood?
1: Ah... Uh. Well, I could answer that two different ways. One way, as, a, as an astronomer, I really wish I understood why it is that black holes and galaxies are so tightly correlated. I mean, that just doesn't make sense to me why something that's so teeny tiny at the center of the galaxy is related to the size of the galaxy around it. Just doesn't, it doesn't compute. The other thing is um, you would think that given um, all the optics and alignment of stuff on this telescope, I I wish I understood some of the math behind that better just because (laughs) I'd like to understand it better.
0: (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Second question. How do you tell someone they have their facts
1: wrong? Well, you can try the brute force method of saying gently, you know, I I don't think that number is quite right. I really think it's this. Or you can create an analogy that helps them see that their fact is wrong.
0: Oh, if this were true, that would be true. Yes.
1: (laughs) What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? The strangest question that anyone has ever asked me (laughs) <laughs> well, there was a pretty funny one recently. Um, I, there was a, a lady that wrote an article about Webb for The New Yorker, and she used a phrase saying that I had astrological blue eyes. And everyone has been asking me, what does that mean about my eyes? And about all I can say is, they're blue. <laughs>
0: did this person describe you as having astrological blue eyes? Yep My question is what do you what does anybody suppose it meant?
1: I'm not I think we'd have to go back and ask the author exactly what she meant.
0: <laughs> <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker?
1: Um well, there are two ways I can scream <laughs> That's one way. I can wave my hands. That's another way.
0: <laughs> what, has any one of these worked?
1: Uh, rarely. <laughs> Turning around and walking away sometimes works pretty well. <laughs> that doesn't work so well on the phone, though.
0: No. no. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How would you start up a, a genuine conversation?
1: Well, I'd, I'd introduce myself, and I'd try to find out what they're interested in, you know, just sort of the standard conversation things. And almost always when you reveal that you're an astronomer, people suddenly start wanting to ask lots of questions. Happens all the time on airplanes.
0: <laughs> yeah, I bet. What, what, what are the most common questions?
1: Uh, do I believe in life elsewhere in the universe? That's uh-huh. a common one. Um, Do I believe in astrology? That's another common one. And the answer is no, I don't. And another, occasionally you run across someone who knows a bit and they ask, want to ask about things like, well, what made the Big Bang happen? Or are there other universes? And questions like that that are a bit more penetrating.
0: Right. What gives you confidence?
1: Knowing that the people I'm working with on this project... And my te- the whole team, not just my local camera team, but everyone on the project is really, 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 really good and really, really, really dedicated. It's a fantastic group of people to be working with. And that gives me a lot of confidence.
0: Last question. What book changed your life?
1: Book Changed My Life, Um, I'll have to remember the title, but I read some science fiction books when I was a kid. And one of those, probably a book by Robert Heinlein, got me hooked on wanting to go elsewhere in the universe. It's interesting.
0: His name comes up often in answer to this question. It's so interesting that science fiction has inspired science reality.
1: Yep, certainly did for me. (laughs) Fascinating.
0: Thanks so much, Marcia.
1: You're welcome.
0: Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. Marsha Rieke is a professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona and is the principal investigator for the near-infrared camera on the James Webb Space Telescope. The telescope itself has now arrived safely in Kourou, French Guiana. It's sitting in a clean room ready to be attached to the Ariane 5 rocket. That'll happen a week or so before the scheduled launch date of December 18. You can find a full description of the telescope and its mission at jwst.nasa.gov. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chemay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Holland Taylor, an actor who late in her busy career set out to bring to life on the stage a woman she hugely admired, the late Texas Governor Ann Richards.
1: I am going to research her and I'm going to write a play that will reveal her persona. That is all I cared about because I thought if I can make a hologram, if I can create a, a, a being, a, you know, a being in front of the audience that is, is, that is like her, truly like her, it will inspire people to a degree, in much the way she did. And I wanted to carry that inspiration for it because that's what her persona was.
0: Holland Taylor, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit com, And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.